Tina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WG- Next on Legal Face Off, we are very privileged to have a friend of the show, frequent guest. He's been a while since he's been on because he's been a little bit busy uh, with things like defending the president, writing books, hosting his brand new podcast called The Dirt Show, which is an amazing podcast. A competitor to our show, but a friend, a friendly podcast because I've been listening to every show since it started. It's an amazing, uh, really amazing podcast. Legal legend, Harvard Law professor emeritus, Alan Dershowitz. Welcome back to Legal Face Off. Always a pleasure to be on with you. It's such good, intelligent talk that I look forward to it. Well, we're really privileged to have you on. So we want to jump into a bunch of different topics uh, while we have you talk about. Now, Justice Amy Barrett Coney uh, on the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett, I should say, uh, on the Supreme Court. You wrote a book about it. Tell us about your book. By the way, you are the fastest author in the in history. <laughs> you found out these books really quickly. Tell us what compelled you to write the book and what we would learn from reading this book. Well, I think there are three different issues in this uh, nomination. First, should the nomination have been made at all? The answer to that is clearly no under the Republicans' own rules. They said no nomination in the last year. Quote my words back to me. And then this came up just months before the election. And she gets confirmed a week before the election. So by the Republicans' own rules, it never, ever should have come in front of the Senate. That's number one. Number two, she was highly qualified, extraordinarily qualified, exactly as qualified as Merrick Garland. He should have been on the Supreme Court and she should be on the Supreme Court. And then we'd have kind of an even break. Number three, the issue that we have looking forward is her recusal. Will she recuse herself if the presidential election comes before her and she has to cast the deciding vote on a litigant in the case who just appointed her to the Supreme Court? Will she recuse herself in abortion and gay rights cases? Because she wrote a brilliant law review article in 1998 about what role a religious Catholic should take when her views, her personal religious views, directly clash with the law. This is not a question of questioning her religion. It's an issue that she herself invited because she wrote that law review article. So I think those are the three issues, and those are the three issues I covered in my book. By the way, my publisher has submitted my book to the Guinness Book of Records. It was, I think, eight days from coming up with the idea until the time it appeared on Kindle. I worked my head off, but I got a book out and published in eight days. So it's amazing what publishing can do these days with electronics. Unbelievable. So do you think she would recuse herself? I mean, especially looking at, at, at the history of how these cases come up to the Supreme Court and the fact that there are probably any number of justices who over time have religious beliefs that conflict with things like on the issue of abortion, for example. Well, but she's written about it. And right. basically, to give you the most extreme hypothetical, let's assume Congress and the uh, states pass the constitutional amendment giving a woman the right to choose abortion, a constitutional amendment, or a national law giving a woman the right to choose. She could not, according to her own philosophy, vote to support that because she thinks abortion is killing a living soul, a living human being. So she might have to recuse herself. 
uh, death penalty cases similarly, although the Catholic Church's position on the death penalty is not a matter of ex cathedra, it's not a matter of binding religious law, it is binding religious law on the issue of abortion. So by her own writing, she might have to accuse herself. On the Affordable Care Act, no way, she's not going to accuse herself, she's just like any other justice. Mm -hmm. On the issue of whether she cast the deciding vote for the President of the United States, I don't think she'd have to recuse herself under the statute, but she might choose to. She has a 40-year career in front of her. Does she really want to start her career in such a controversial matter? So I think those are the issues that will come up. And she will be the ultimate judge because in the Supreme Court, justices make the decision and they're not subject to further review by the court. Professor, you're a Supreme Court expert. You've talked on our show many times about these issues. You're a former Supreme Court clerk. Right. You've taught many uh, uh, Supreme Court clerks. It's interesting to note that this justice and the last two are former clerks who have now gone on to become justices. Right. The question to you is, let's get to court packing, right? We're a few days away from the election. Obviously, this idea of court packing has been a major issue. I know you have strong feelings against changing the Constitution to add additional justices to the Supreme Court, but you do have an idea that I listened to on the Dirt Show um, that will end lifetime appointments for Supreme Court justices. Talk to us about why court packing right. is a bad idea, but why limiting uh, their terms is a good idea. Okay, there are two bad ideas. Court packing, by the way, that could just be done legislatively. You don't even need a constitutional amendment. There's no provision in the Constitution about the number of judges. But it would begin an arms race. The Democrats would add two, the Republicans would add four, the Democrats would add. Finally, we get to the size of the Sanhedrin in the 71 uh, judges, and that would not be good for the Supreme Court or for the United States of America. The other two proposals, one is very good, the other is very bad. The very bad one is age limitation, that is mandatory retirement at 70 or 75. That would just encourage presidents to appoint younger and younger and younger justices. If the retirement age is 70, they're going to go to people who are 35 to keep them on the court. But term limits is a very good idea say, an 18-year term limit, one 18-year term, staggered so that every president gets at least one appointment, even if they serve only four years. That probably would require a constitutional amendment. And if it didn't, if it could be done legislatively, it would have to be done only prospectively. You couldn't deny a sitting justice the current status of a lifetime appointment. It could only be the new justices would get a term limit. I think that's a good idea. Look, Lifetime appointments are for kings, queens, popes, and maybe professors, and I'm not so sure about professors. But in a democracy, platonic guardians shouldn't be sitting for 40 years. Uh, President Trump yesterday said he hoped that uh, Justice Barrett would sit for 50 years. 50 years! Even kings don't sit for 50 years. So, Professor, why don't we talk for a moment about another facet of your book, which is talking about um, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Can you just share with us what you think her legacy will look like, especially in the wake of the recent um, confirmation of Justice Barrett? Okay, so I've known uh, Ruth for many, many years. We grew up a few blocks away from each other. Our mothers both worked as bookkeepers in the garment district. The last time I had lunch with Ruth, uh, we talked about our mothers. She used to love to say, what's the difference between a woman who works as a bookkeeper in the garment district and a Supreme Court justice, she would say one generation. 
In my case, it's what's the difference between a woman who worked in the garment district as a bookkeeper and a Harvard law professor, one generation. So we had a, a good relationship. I worked with her when she was on the ACLU staff. I worked with her on Israel issues early in her uh, career. Uh, her legacy will be a very distinguished uh, one. You know, she got to the court when she was 60. People forget that. And she, of course, served with great distinction for many years. She'll be remembered more for her votes than for her majority opinions. Her dissenting opinions will be remembered and her votes will be remembered. But she will not she will not be like Justice Scalia, who will be remembered for the felicity of their pen or putting together a new approach to constitutional law. Her approach to constitutional law was very much the same as the justice I clerked for at the Goldberg, some other liberal justices, but she will have a great, great legacy. They're building a statue to her in Brooklyn. I think that's terrific. I have my, I have my name on the Brooklyn Walk of Fame, so anybody can step on me if they want to and express their views. They can spit on me. They can do whatever they want, but she gets a statue, and that's terrific. She deserves it. Professor, you've been very vocal, shifting gears. You've been very vocal on your show, The Durr Show, um, about these allegations against you by by this uh, Jeffrey right. Epstein accuser, uh, Virginia Giffray. And what struck me, maybe it was the last episode, that you said you've never been sued or never sued anyone in your longest distinguished career. This is the first time that you're a litigant. Explain why you've been so passionate and vocal about defending your good name in this situation. Well, you know, I've lived uh, 82 years. For 75 years, nobody ever accused me of anything. 50 years at Harvard, hundreds of women, research assistants, secretaries. I'm not that guy. I don't hug. I don't touch. I've had sex with one woman during the relevant time period. My wife, I don't touch anybody. This was a total false accusation concocted by a group of lawyers looking for a big payday. We have a tape recording of her best friend saying that she, the accuser, told her best friend and it's never been denied uh, that she was pressured to falsely accuse me by her lawyers in order to get a billion dollars from Leslie Wexner. They tried to hide emails and a book manuscript in which she acknowledges that she never met me. She never heard of me. She saw me once uh, talking to Jeffrey Epstein. She claims we had uh, a tape recording of David Boys, who's behind a lot of this. David Boys who has a record of the most bar complaints filed against them, against any any prominent lawyer in America. I have him on tape, to be sure, surreptitiously reported. He recorded. He didn't know. He says maybe he did know, but he probably didn't know he was on tape, admitting to me she was wrong, admitting to me that I couldn't have been in the places she said she was, admitting to me that uh, I was essentially totally uh, innocent. I have that on tape. And yet people continue to believe it. The 92nd Street Y banned me from speaking. They said, we know you didn't do anything wrong, but we don't want trouble. We don't want protests. Universities have stopped inviting me because they know there'll be protests from the cancel culture people. So I will fight back. I wrote a book called Guilt by Accusation. I've written another book called The Cancel Culture. How do I fight back? I write books and I file lawsuits. That's all I know how to do. I'm Professor, to quote Megan Kelly, who is the first guest on your show, you're Alan fucking Dershowitz, right? I mean, that was her big, that was her big quote or big takeaway. I know you've, you've re referenced it several times on your show. So um, I think you're doing the right thing. My last question, Tina might have one last one, is the Dodgers finally won last night after a long drought. Yeah. You're a Brooklyn yeah. guy. You've talked at our show before about your love of baseball. 
Uh, the Dodgers, many of our listeners might know, started where? In Brooklyn, New York. Talk to, I, us about your, talk to us about your feelings for the Dodgers winning last night. I own the 1955 World Series ring of Don Zimmer. The, he was on second base the day they won the World Series. That was one of the great days of my life. I was a freshman in college when the Brooklyn Dodgers won. And I also have an early ring from 1947. Uh, look, uh, they're not my Brooklyn Dodgers because they moved. Uh, you know, the old joke that we used to tell in Brooklyn, uh, you're in the room and there's Stalin and there's Hitler and there's Walter O'Malley, the guy who sold the, who brought the Brooklyn Dodgers out of Brooklyn. And you only have two bullets. Uh, who do you shoot? And the answer is you shoot O'Malley twice. Uh, so, you know, that's how we felt about moving out of Brooklyn. But look, last night, Mookie Betts was unbelievable. But uh, the manager, Cash, I think made a terrible mistake. I was screaming at him on the television. Leave him in. Leave him in. Don't take him out. Look at this guy. He's amazing. And he played by the statistics instead of playing. Statistics, by it's statistics versus baseball. It's, it, it shows that old school baseball still you know, still better than, than, than the math. Look, I agree with that. You got to go with your heart. And then you ask yourself, if you go with your heart and others go with statistic, who does better? Um, you know, I, I've watched all the movies. I'm close to the Red Sox and I go to games. I love baseball. I'm going to miss baseball now for the next few months. But the Dodgers deserve to win. Mookie Betts was unbelievable. I was going to ask a, a more boring question, but one that's getting a lot of airplay also is the election. If you have any comments you'd like to make about the upcoming election. Yeah, vote. Give us please. a scoop. <laughs> Give us a scoop. Tell, finally, finally tell us who you're voting for. You've yeah. never told, no, you've no, never told do anyone. Give us, a, give us a scoop. I, I, I'm not going to do that. I'll just tell you I've always voted Democrat. Um, since I voted for John F. Kennedy in 1960, I voted for Hillary Clinton. But I don't disclose my votes in advance. I just want everybody to vote. And I hope the election is decisive. I hope it doesn't go to the courts. And if it does go to the courts, I hope whoever loses acts in the spirit of Al Gore and Richard Nixon, who both conceded elections that they thought had been stolen from them. So I'm hoping we have a decisive victory next Tuesday. That's Professor Alan Dershowitz. Listen to him right now on The Dersh Show, wherever you get your podcast. I will say, as a avid consumer of podcasts, legal or otherwise, this is at the top of my list. I listen every day. He's very prolific. As prolific an author as he is, he's in that studio almost every day punching out some new content. So uh, it's a real pleasure to have you back, Professor Dershowitz. You're always welcome on our show. Thank you so oh, much thank for you. us on Legal Thank Day. you. Love to come back again soon. Thank you. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Joining us next on Legal Faceoff, we're very privileged to have Tim Kosnoff. Tim is with AbusedAndScouting.com. He is a uh, attorney, a former prosecutor, defense lawyer, and currently a lawyer representing victims of child sexual abuse. Tim, welcome to Legal Faceoff. Thank you for having me. 
So November 16th uh, marks an important day in your uh, claims against the Boy Scouts of America. Talk to our listeners about why that date is impactful. This was a date that was set by the bankruptcy court. Uh, it wasn't something that survivors wanted. Um, it was one more thing that was taken from them, which was to the freedom to come forward and pursue justice when they were ready, not when the Boy Scouts were ready. But November 16th is a is a firm, no excuse deadline. If you ever considered filing a claim or a lawsuit or anything of the nature for the abuse you suffered in scouting, you must file your proof of claim by 5 p.m. on November 16th, or you will be forever barred from coming. How many, how many scouts are we talking about, you think? Uh, it's, it's unknown currently, but generally, how many do you represent and how many are out there, you think, with this deadline looming? Well, uh, our group uh, represents approximately 18,000. I believe that there will be somewhere between 50 and 60,000 uh, men who will file claims. Um, uh, abused and Scouting is part of a, another group called the Coalition uh, for Justice for Scouts, uh, and it has dozens of law firms. Uh, representing uh, collectively, we represent probably 85 to 90 percent of all of the men who have come forward and uh, filed claims or about to file claims uh, in it. Uh, so um, it's uh, these are the men that chose to come forward, found the courage to come forward. But I personally believe that there are millions of living men who were abused in scouting who will never come forward, and that's that's unfortunate, but it is their choice. But uh, we want to make sure that they make that choice knowingly, knowing what they're giving up by not coming forward and filing a claim by November 16th. Um, you know, we've covered extensively on the almost seven years we've been doing legal stories, uh, these kind of cases, sexual abuse cases, domestic uh, abuse, certainly um, allegations against uh, priests and churches. Talk to us from your experience as one of the foremost litigators in this area uh, defending victims of abuse, why it is so difficult to come forward. Um, we are in the Me Too era, so it has been easier, I think, for victims to come forward. But even now, and to your point, we're seeing how difficult it is for victims. Why is it particularly important or, or difficult for men to come forward, especially ones in the scouting world? Talk to us about what's unique about these victims. Sure. Well, scouting was and still is predominantly uh, a youth organization for for males. Uh, and um, the kinds of abuse that we are hearing about by the men who contact us is off the charts horrible. Um, you're talking about um, men who were boys, nine, 10 years old, being violently raped uh, in this organization. It was really the perfect setting for the pedophile. He could gain access to boys of his particular age preference and uh, get them alone away from their parents in uh, an environment where the child was completely unprotected. And uh, this is um, what made scouting distinctive, uh, uh, is that it set up the perfect conditions to disempower the child, remove him from those 
protective institutions in society, whether it's parents, other adults, and so forth, and instead to place him in an environment where he was completely vulnerable. So that's the difference. The reason men are coming forward now, um, I think, does have to do with the fact that there's less stigma associated with it, uh, that there's uh, uh, more of a feeling that they won't be judged, that society now looks at victims differently. But they've kept this pain, this secret inside for so long that until we came along and said, break your silence, protect today's children, come forward, identify your abusers, um, nobody had really communicated that message on a national level. And we didn't know when we founded Abused and Scouting and began this project in early 2019, how many men would respond to that kind of messaging. We thought maybe a few hundred, but now it's tens of thousands, and yet it's still only the tip of the iceberg. This has been studied, Rich, by social scientists, and um, our data really bears it out, which is the average age at which a man is prepared to disclose this the, the, the abuse is age 51. Mm. And, and that syncs almost exactly with our data, which is the men that are coming forward are um, 80, 85 percent of them uh, were abused uh, in the late 60s to the early 80s. So they're 45 to 62 years of age, generally. It's amazing uh, to think that you that these men have lived with that uh, for most of their adult life. Very, very, very tragic. Last question on legal face-off, Tim. This is the largest ever sexual child sexual abuse case against a single organization. Um, that organization has declared bankruptcy. Those two things make your job much more difficult. Talk to us about the legal challenges that you are facing and will face as you try to collect inevitably against an organization as large as this one with as many clients and victims, but that is bankrupt. Well, I'm quite uh, positive about that, quite optimistic. Uh, there's a uh, an unusual uh, set of circumstances here. Uh, one is there's virtually unlimited insurance in this case. Uh, number one, uh, the Boy Scouts and their local chartering organizations and sponsoring organizations will have to contribute. Uh, but um, this uh, negligence was insured by major insurance companies uh, for decades, understanding the risk profile that they were insuring. And now they are facing um, massive, massive payouts on these claims. Typically, they're capped. Uh, by the um, amount of resources of the bankrupt, in this case, the Boy Scouts of America. But um, this is an unusual circumstance where these policies, many of them over decades, had no annual aggregate caps, which means um, there should be ample insurance to pay full value to the men that come forward. He said a long and distinguished career protecting the rights of uh, victims of assault He's collected more than $500 million in settlements and jury verdicts for his clients. Uh, the website is abusedandscouting.com. Tim Kozno, thank you so much for your hard work and for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thank you for having me, Rich. 
Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020. Designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Next up on Legal Faceoff, Tina, we're very honored to have someone all the way from South Africa, our first South African guest, in fact, uh, Kelly Phelps. Kelly Phelps is a senior lecturer in the public law department at the University of Cape Town. Uh, she covered the Oscar Pistorius case in depth. In fact, her latest research focuses on legal issues raised by this case, and it's called The Role of Error in Objecto in South African Criminal Law an opportunity for reevaluation presented by State versus Pistorius. Kelly, welcome to Legal Faceoff. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be joining you. So the film we're talking about in which you're uh, interviewed extensively is a 30 for 30 documentary. It's called The Trials of Oscar Pistorius. And um, it talks about, of course, who many refer to as South Africans O.J. Simpson, right? The trial of the century. Oscar Pistorius was a world-renowned Paralympian and actually, you know, fought to get into the London Olympics, even though he had prosthetic legs. His nickname was the Blade Runner. And the film talks about his meteoric rise as a Paralympian, um, despite many challenges that that presents. And it also talks, of course, about the trial, the murder trial. Oscar Pistorius on Valentine's Day, um, I think it was 2013 shot and killed his girlfriend, Riva Stankamp, through the locked door of their apartment. He uh, pled innocent and said that he was fighting and he was shooting at an intruder. He thought there was an intruder in the bathroom and he didn't have the requisite intent to commit the crime of murder. Uh, a judge convicted him after a trial that garnered not just attention in South Africa, but all across the world, many would say unparalleled attention, and he is currently serving a 15-year sentence because an appeal court actually um, upped the charge and found him guilty of murder, whereas the judge only found him guilty of culpable homicide, which is more or less the equivalent of manslaughter as we know it. That is a long intro. I hope it's accurate, more or less. But Kelly, um, I actually just read an interview uh, by in which the director of the film says that this was really a uniquely South African trial and South African verdict. 
Tell us why that is, if you agree, and how the South African criminal justice system is different from what we recognize in the United States. First of all, as I mentioned, it was a judge that rendered the decision, the verdict in this case, not a jury. That's obviously one example. But what about this case um, made it uniquely South African? So there's, there's a few uh, distinct features of South African criminal law that are not shared by other similarly situated legal systems. Uh, the first of which you've alluded to already, which is the fact that we're judge-led, we don't have a jury system. Um, in fact, mostly um, American followers of the trial seem very preoccupied with the fact that there was no jury. But it's not entirely dissimilar in the sense that we follow a system called assessors. So in his original trial, where the judge, Judge Masipa, was leading the trial, you may have noticed for those people who followed it that she was sitting with two other people who were called assessors. And assessors are like juries. They have the same duties of a jury in that they can help reach a verdict on questions of fact, on the interpretation of the facts, but the questions of law are left to the judge alone. They can't weigh in on questions of law. The main difference between juries and assessors, other than the number of people who sit on them, is also the fact that assessors, which I think is actually quite a strong feature of South African law, um, assessors are drawn from a professional pool and a pool of experts. So they'll either be um, law professors who specialize in the area of law under review, or they'll be subject matter experts from the area that's under review in a particular trial. So that's different, but it is still related. The two critical legal differences that uh, on which, in fact, the whole trial revolved from the American legal system, certainly, is firstly, um, the kinds of convictions that we have for killing. So whereas in America, you have uh, first degree murder and second degree murder and manslaughter, for example, we don't have all of those stratifications. We follow a very simple division for all homicide cases. It is either intentional killing, which leads to a murder charge, or it is negligent killing, which leads to a culpable homicide charge. The difference for us is that in all the multiplicity of cases and factual scenarios that need to be fitted into these two simple criteria, we've developed um, quite intricate rules and definitions of intention. So intention can actually arise in four different varieties in South Africa, uh, direct intention, indirect intention, and then the form of intention that the Pistorius trial revolved around, which um, I've never heard so many lay people speak Latin in my life before, but it's the form of intention called dolus eventualis. And that simply put is what we call legal or constructive intention. And it, it exists where it's not necessarily your aim and object to cause someone's death, but subjectively assessed, you foresaw the possibility of that death resulting from your actions and you proceeded with those actions reckless to that possibility. And it was this definition on which this whole trial ended up hinging because essentially Mr. Pistorius claimed that his defense was mistaken belief in self-defense and that because he mistakenly believed he was acting in self-defense, he didn't intend to kill Reva Steenkamp and it therefore couldn't be a murder conviction. The state disagreed and ultimately what the Supreme Court had to decide 
was the correct legal interpretation of dolus eventualis. So this case wasn't decided, surprisingly, on the facts. It actually came down to eventually for the murder conviction, a very technical analysis of this unique form of South African intention. Tia's got a question, but to me in the film, that was a really interesting turning point. Like, do you think he just had bad lawyers? Because he ended up being convicted, as I understand it, because he intended to kill someone. And that's culpable homicide. It doesn't matter if he intended to kill a burglar or his girlfriend. So was that just bad advice by his lawyer? I mean, they, they must have known that that would be a bad defense. Yeah, so so I, I absolutely don't think it was bad advice by his lawyers. In fact, I think his lawyers were uh, one of the premier uh, criminal lawyers, certainly in South Africa and potentially globally. The, the misconception here is one that was shared by the state, quite frankly, and I'm going to say a little controversially and with all due respect to the Supreme Court of Appeal, it was a misapprehension that was also shared by the Supreme Court of Appeal. And that revolved around a confusion, in my opinion, between two different rules of law. The first is a rule of law that says a mistaken identity will not provide you a defense to a murder charge. It won't mean that you don't have intention. And that's what the state was arguing. And that's essentially what summed up, I believe, in your uh, proposition now. The, the second issue is a legal rule called putative private defense, otherwise colloquially, colloquially known as mistaken belief in self-defense. Now, those two in this trial got collapsed, both by media commentators by the prosecutors and eventually, I would argue, by the Supreme Court of Appeal. Because essentially, what the state was arguing was that he can't have a defense to intention simply because he thought it was an intruder, he intended to kill a person. But that misconstrues the putative private defense that he was putting forward. His legal team, nor himself, were never arguing that because he didn't think it was her, he had a defense. The argument is broader than that. The argument is because he believed it was an intruder, he believed his life was in danger. He therefore believed mistakenly that he was acting in lawful self-defense and he therefore lacked knowledge of unlawfulness, which is required for intention. Those, I know it's very complex, but these are two completely different aspects of law. And in fact, they got collapsed as this trial progressed. And the Supreme Court of Appeal did not distinguish between those issues. They treated his defense as if it was a mistaken um, identity, whereas it was never a mistaken identity. It was a mistaken belief in self-defense. The unusual part of this trial in that respect is that this question of mistaken identity. In fact, it's quite tenuous to even refer to it as a rule. Um, It's really just a principle of law that has been incredibly peripheral up to this trial and is mentioned in one or two textbooks in a glancing sentence. There has never in the history of South African law ever been a criminal case that has revolved around this principle of mistaken identity. There are a plethora of cases that revolve around putative private defence, but not mistaken identity. The state argued this mistaken identity point in their original court papers. And from that moment, this confusion took seed and began to flourish. And in my opinion, eventually ended up in what I think is essentially a very bad precedent. 
So Kelly, this trial involved a white man killing a white woman. Um, but nevertheless, the film explored the legacy of domestic abuse as well as um, the history of apartheid and racism. Um, how do these concepts intersect um, in terms of South African society today? Well, I, I'd argue really that after uh, coronavirus and uh, corruption, uh, racism and domestic violence are probably the two uh, most critical issues facing South African society. Uh, in terms of racism, we obviously have a very deep, deep legacy and history of racism that we've inherited in the aftermath from apartheid. And I think um, in many respects, we had a, a social period of euphoria um, in the transition from apartheid, where probably some of the deeper fissures that were left by this legacy of racism were overlooked and were not tackled head on sufficiently. And that has allowed them to bubble through the surface again now in more recent times. And is something that um, is a prevailing theme through all areas of social commentary in South Africa. Um, and of course, with this trial, because of uh, his initial argument of believing that there was an intruder, this unnamed faceless intruder, it immediately became a conduit through which to ventilate some of these racial anxieties and tensions because it harked back to the concept during apartheid of um, the sort of wealthy, privileged uh, white Africana with this fear of what was called the black fear in South Africa during apartheid, the fear of the black masses rising up and vesting back privilege. Um, so, so this case provided a lens and a conduit through which those anxieties became explored again. With regard to domestic violence, uh, tragically, South Africa has one of the highest rates in the world of domestic violence. Uh, for example, in the first three weeks of our coronavirus shutdown earlier in the year, we had no fewer than 120,000 calls through the official police um, hotline uh, seeking uh, refuge and protection from uh, situations of domestic violence. The rates of femicide in South Africa are about five times the global average. And at least half of those are people, are women killed by um, people they know and most frequently by domestic partners. We have a fantastic legal infrastructure to combat this problem. Our problem has never been our infrastructure. Our problem has always been our implementation of that infrastructure. So there is this massive disconnect between these wonderful lofty laws and protection mechanisms on the one hand, and actually bringing those into practical fruition on the other hand. And therefore it remains, uh, uh, quite frankly, a noose around our neck. Um, and uh, 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 President Saul Ramaphosa at the moment has highlighted it as one of his key issues to focus on. But I think quite tragically, um, he's sort of gone back to all of the old go-tos. So how do we combat domestic violence? 
let's throw them in prison and lock away and throw away the key. Um, there's calls to reinstate the death penalty as if legal mechanisms are ever going to solve uh, such deep-seated and complex uh, social problems that lead to such rife rates of domestic violence. I think arguably also our history of, of racism in South Africa with apartheid has also exacerbated the situation with domestic violence. Um, as human nature is often want to do, when there's a pecking order and a hierarchy and people are being oppressed all the way down that hierarchy, there's an instinct to not be at the bottom. And I think um, in, in that playing out during apartheid, it created the circumstances for domestic violence to really flourish. And because we've tended to take this very one-dimensional law and order approach to it, rather than really trying to tackle the social and cultural issues at its core, we haven't really made any appreciable progress since the end of apartheid. Of course, Oscar's case has become synonymous with domestic violence, which I always find to be sort of shockingly ironic because it was the one issue that even the Supreme Court agreed with the lower court that there was absolutely no evidence of domestic violence in this case. But I suspect that uh, certainly the ANC Women's League saw it as a convenient opportunity to have a high-profile flag bearer for the issue. And um, the media certainly jumped on the characterization of the case in this respect from very early on in the trial. And this became a theme that um, was absolutely anchored in all of the media coverage subsequent, so that now these two issues, Oscar Pistorius and domestic violence, have become synonymous, despite the fact that the evidence just simply does not support that characterization at all. Kelly, we are out of time. I've got so many more questions, honestly. I was really interested in this film and your take on it. Um, you know, I wanted to talk to you uh, maybe next time a, a little bit about what a post-incarceration life looks like for Oscar Pistorius. Quite poignantly, at the end of the film, he gives his former principal a hug and he talks about forgiveness and he talks about, what will I tell my children? So I'd love to get your take on that in the future. We're out of time. Um, and also, by the way, I want to point out that the, 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 the two lawyers, the one for the state and the defense, blew me away as a trial lawyer myself. Uh, they were incredible. They were, to me, the best part of the film because of how strong advocates they were. But we'll deal with that another time. In the meantime, she is one of these subjects, one of the stars, I would say, of the life and trials of Oscar Pistorius, brand new 30 for 30 documentary on ESPN. Kelly Phelps, thank you so much for joining us all the way from South Africa. Please come visit us in studio next time you're up, up in the United States in Chicago. Deal. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Thanks, Kelly. We appreciate it. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. 
In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Pat, welcome to the show. Great to be here again. So the trial of the Chicago 7, yeah. for those of us who are lawyers or non-lawyers who may know a little bit about the, about the Chicago 7 or may not know anything at all, what can you tell us? Well, uh, you know, just as a, a quick summary, um, this was the trial of the Chicago 7, which is also called the uh, trial of the Chicago 8, and I'll explain that in a second. Um, it, was a, it was based on the demonstrations that occurred. Um, of course, my phone goes off. It was based on the demonstrations that occurred uh, on... Um, uh, August of 1968, where they were uh, demonstrating against the uh, Democratic National Convention. The Yippies came to town. The student, uh, um, student demonstrations came to town. And it, it was determined that uh, uh, by the government that seven people were the instigators. And that was the trial. Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tom Hayden, Rennie Davis, David Dellinger, Lee Weiner, John Frones and Bobby Seal making eight, but he was not a part of the trial. He was uh, defending himself during the trial. Pat, of course, the film is so much more relevant today. Yes. Uh, the tagline is the whole world is watching, echoing what the protesters were saying during the course of these riots and the convention and also this trial that took forever. It's obviously relevant today, given all the protests we've seen over the last few months. Why do you think now is the right time for um, Aaron Sorkin, who, by the way, is the director, who we know from countless films, TV, The West Wing, A Few Good Men, known really as a prolific writer. This is the second film he directed. Why do you think now is the right time for this film? Well, uh, obviously, because we're in a situation like this again with street protests. How do we uh, determine in a street protest who are instigators and who are actually peaceful protesters. And this was the same distinction that they were making in the uh, Chicago 7 trial. And it comes out very, uh, uh, it unfolds in, in the Aaron Sorkin's very unique style of allowing his characters to fill up the circumstances of the trial. So um, yeah, it, it's a complete parallel to today. We're going to see these trials come up again, and we have seen them with uh, Black Lives Matter uh, in the past, in the last five years, of course. So how does this rank against other Sorkin works? I mean, my favorite personally is West Wing. I know a lot of people love that show. Um, I actually know three or four people who are watching the whole series as we speak from beginning to end again for like the 10th time. How does this, when you look at his body of work, how does it rank um, obviously, he's got a very distinctive style. What are your thoughts on how this stacks up against his other works? 
I rated this five out of five. I gave it a perfect score. And the reason I gave it a perfect score is he took very, very complex material and he managed to create a character drama out of it. This was really about the stakes of America back then. It was really about, you know, Daly Chicago, Richard J. Daly's Chicago. And it was about the government intervening and naming people who may or may not have been the instigators who simply were there, especially with Bobby Seale. I mean, it was a total uh, travesty of justice there. Pat, talking about rip from the headlines with the protests going on, you know, this summer, what really... Maybe arguably the most compelling part of the movie, and I just finished watching it this morning, just in time, was the scene where they finally get Michael Keaton's character to testify, right? Michael Keaton is Ramsey the Clark. Former, Ramsey Clark, the former uh, attorney general of the United States. And they, he agrees. They go to his house, and they're trying to get him to testify. They're trying to ask him because there's certainly a question legally about whether he, they can compel him to divulge this, these conversations he had with the president. Anyway, Keaton, as Clark, agrees to testify, walks into court, and much to everyone's surprise, um, admits that it was the Chicago police who were charged with um, starting the riot. And that's incredibly explosive information, yet it doesn't get into court because the judge doesn't allow it to come into court. What was really interesting, legally, we try to focus on the law on, on this podcast, is this question about whether the former attorney general um, was able to testify about conversations he had with the president or whether that was protected, whether it was privileged. And right. the most important line is the fact that he says, I am not the president's lawyer. Now, guess what? We're about to talk in the grab bag about a DOJ case yesterday involving a, uh, a defamation lawsuit where the president of the United States today is alleging that his attorney general, Richard Barr, represents him personally for conduct that has nothing to do with the presidency, right? This alleged rape of a female. Well, the court in this case, a federal judge said, guess what? The DOJ is not the president's lawyer. So I thought how interesting that that was the key moment in, in the film and it's happening again today. Well, also I thought was interesting, which I didn't know, was that John Mitchell was the one that started this whole ball rolling. He got, um, you know, the... Uh, the prosecutor, the federal prosecutor, um, you know, the, uh, Richard Schultz involved in, in, in making this thing happen and uh, without looking at the details of what the police did that year. It's it's so it's such a great film, you know, and, and you got to always watch it twice because I, I always like, yes. you know, as as a lawyer and as a legal analyst and as a co-host of the show, I'm always thinking obsessing over the legal aspect. But just as a drama, to your point. And the acting is amazing. Sasha Baron Cohen, who we'll cover in a moment, you know, Borat, well known for Borat, but does a great job um, as, as Abby Hoffman. And just the performances throughout are great. We got to run, but we, we want to ask you one last question, and we're sure. going to chime in too. But we're this is our Halloween episode. We got some Halloween uh, tricks and treats going on. Give us one or two atypical Halloween films that you could recommend to our listeners that will scare the crap out of them this Halloween that maybe. I've got under the wet, uh, under the radar. I've got one. I've got a couple. I've got a ton because I'm a horror guy. Sure. But give our listeners a couple that you love that maybe are, aren't as well known. Well, I'll prelim this by saying I'm not a big horror guy. Ah, but 
there are a couple that have really affected me. Well, one that's affected me in my life. It's a very popular film, but it needs to be viewed through another lens, and that's The Exorcist. Because I believe The Exorcist is the ultimate Catholic guilt movie. So Ah. (laughs) it affects me in that way. And I'm going to also name uh, one that uh, has occurred uh, recently. It's called Hereditary. It's by the new director, Ari Oster, uh, who also did Midsummer last year. But Hereditary is so uh, poignantly horrific uh, because it talks about family and this whole symbolic nature of, um, you know, this witchery that that goes forward within the family. Uh, Tony Collette's in that. And it's just amazing. Gabriel Byrne. Well, Mid, Midsummer, by the way, is bananas. I mean, what it is a nutty film. It's it's <laughs> it's it's good. Tina, favorite horror movie? Uh, I still love The Ring, and I'm a big horror person. But in terms of what scared me the most, and I've seen everything that there is to see up until probably about 1990, um, The Ring is pretty pretty scary. How about you, Rich? I mean, I love. I don't. I'm not a so I'm I'm the biggest horror fan around. I, mean, I collect horror memorabilia. And I've seen everything. Uh, I don't like supernatural films, though. So that takes a lot of the current horror out of the picture because for me, growing up, I had to believe that it could happen to me to be really scared. And I don't believe anything about supernatural. But that being said, I mean, I love a good, any slasher film, anyone trying to get into your house, I'm all over. Uh, there's a movie called, uh, two movies, Come Out and Play. Pat, did you see Come Out and Play? Uh, it's about uh, this island in Mexico where it's only kids. A virus has taken out the adult population. Wow. And the kids are, you know, killers. And then Clown. Um, clown is like, it sounds like a typical movie where it's a clown killer. It was banned in this country for a little while, which should tell you how great it is. That's a great one. And then finally, um, um, there's a couple of Eli Roth films that are, you know, a little bit off the radar that are amazing. The Green Inferno. Check it out if you haven't seen it. It's uh, about cannibals, about, you know, some backpackers who get lost in the Amazon. And I'll just say that the cannibals are a little bit hungry. So some great films to check out. Um, Pat McDonald, frequent guest to our show. We love having you on. We could talk movies all day and yes, maybe we, we will maybe we will we, we might should. have a we might have an announcement soon about a legal theme movie podcast with pat that That's we'll awesome. uh, we're looking into pat mcdowell thanks so much the uber critic what's your website again where people can find you hollywoodchicago.com and i also make appearances on wbgr in monroe wisconsin and wssr out uh, joliet illinois eddie volkman After a uh, very interesting show so far, we had some great guests. Um, went a little bit over budget in terms of time, but that's okay. When you've got guests like that, we will do it. But we're very, very happy to have a couple of uh, incredible guests. Um, first of all, Eric Zorn. You know Eric Zorn from the Chicago Tribune, longtime commentator and editorialist from the Chicago Tribune and other media. Eric, welcome to WGN Legal Faceoff. Thanks. Good to be here. And uh, even though we talked about RCAC, I might screw up your last name. So tell me how to pronounce your last name. It's Vartinian. Vartinian, exactly. Just like it sounds or just like it looks. And uh, tell us about yourself and uh, what you do. 
I am a real estate entrepreneur and I started my own digital talk show series um, about a year and a half ago called Smart is the New Sexy. Basically, what the show is about is going in and interviewing amazing women around Chicago and hearing their stories of empowerment and inspiration and a little bit of education. And um, I added men into the conversation last time. So we got a little bit of a twist of that, a little twist on that and hearing their perspective on things. Well, it just so happens we've got one of the most amazing women in front of us, Tina Martini. She was recently recognized, of course, as one of the most prominent female lawyers. I'm just going to say in the world. Let's call it that because that's true. So you're in good company. Great. I love to hear that. (laughs) All right. Let's jump into our first story ripped from the headlines. A uh, federal judge said that the Department of Justice cannot defend Donald Trump against a uh, defamation allegation. So there's a female who has sued Donald Trump, and she's alleged that uh, Donald Trump raped her, um, you know, years ago before he was president. And uh, he, of course, as he does, came out strongly, powerfully in his words, against this woman and said that she is lying. Well, she turned around and sued him for defamation. Well, that's where the story uh, turns, because the Department of Justice, in a rather unusual move, said that they were going to intervene to defend the president, the current sitting president, for this uh, alleged defamation resulting from a relationship that occurred well before he was president. Well, just yesterday, the judge in the federal suit said that The DOJ can't do that. There's no standing for a government agency to defend Donald Trump for an act that allegedly took place well before he was president. Um, You know, so we just covered the story of the uh, Chicago 7 trial. In that case, you know, many years ago, the attorney general said that he is not the president's lawyer. He is the American people's lawyer. This is an example And Trump has tried this before, by the way, as we know, but this is an example reinforcing the idea that the Department of Justice is not the president's personal lawyer to defend him against all sorts of allegations. Tina, what are your thoughts on this uh, decision by the judge? Well, I think it's the right decision for a whole host of reasons. First of all, the underlying alleged act, the rape, happened well before he was president. Um, Second of all, the defamation claim, although it rose during the presidency. Again, it has to do with things in his personal life. And I absolutely agree that, you know, the DOJ is not the president's lawyer. This was not something that he had done within the scope of his employment as president, so to speak. And if the DOJ would be allowed to step in on something like this, then what wouldn't they step in to defend him on, correct? Yeah, they said that he's not, the judge said he's not an employee within the meeting of the Federal Tort Claims Act. In other words, and that that act, by the way, shields federal employees uh, from individual charges. But the key is they have to be acting within the scope of their position as an employee, which clearly Trump was not. Eric, you obviously follow, have followed Trump keenly, and you write about Trump all the time. The election's coming up. Critics of the president point to this decision by the judge as another example of the president trying to use his power to protect himself from things that have nothing to do with him being president. What are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's pretty clear that, that uh, Attorney General Barr and the Justice Department were lining up behind Trump. Uh, you know, and I certainly agree with what Tina said, which is what the, that these acts, that the, pre- the act that the president committed, I mean, set aside the alleged rape, 
the or the the alleged um, you know defamation occurred while he was president, but it wasn't in his official capacity as president. He could easily have said nothing, had had no response, or had had lawyers uh, weigh in on his behalf uh, in in formal court proceedings. But he chose to to attack his E. Jean Carroll. He chose to attack her, and that was not. He, he could be president without doing that. And so it's, it, it's clearly an example, and this is just yet another one of, of, of Bill Barr becoming the president's lawyer. And, you know, my other thought is that, well, you know, he does have the Supreme Court now in his pocket. And given what we've seen of the Supreme Court, we might just see him uh, win this uh, on appeal with the Supreme Court. Yeah, RCF, we saw Bill Barr, the attorney general, speak at the Republican National Convention on behalf of the president. And that outraged many people because that is a, you know, very partisan situation. And the attorney general is supposed to be nonpartisan. So this just seems like a continuing saga of the president and his staff using the levers of government to further a political agenda, which, you know, you don't want to see. You understand Trump doing that, but you don't want to see the attorney general who's supposed to you know, pursue justice objectively, step into a case like this, at least in my opinion, and the opinion of the judge. I think we've seen a lot of things during this pregnancy, during the presidency, excuse me, during this presidency that um, it's just some things have been appalling. Some things have, you know, some people have agreed with, some people haven't agreed with. And we've seen um, time and time again, Trump just use his power in every which way that he could and try to navigate to get his way. I mean, we've seen this time and time again. So I don't see this um, accusation being any different and basically bulldozing um, to get his way. And it's been like this over and over again. So I don't even at this point, it's just every time we're hearing things like this, it just goes, it's just one of those things that you just shake your head at and you're just like, not again, you know, where, where does the truth lie? Where can justice be had? Um, so it's just, it's a situation that, as you said, elections are coming up. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, I'm very, I'm very interested to see how this election is going to unfold. Yes, Tina, we're going to lockdown again. Illinois is surging. Governor Pritzker announced yesterday that uh, indoor dining at restaurants and bars will be banned effective Friday. Uh, our mayor here, Lori Leifman in Chicago, has been fighting that and has said that the governor should use different metrics. From our perspective as a legal show, uh, we want to talk about the legal challenges that have sprung up already and will continue to be filed against the governor. There's a restaurant owner who has filed suit against Governor Pritzker, uh, alleging that this latest shutdown is outside the scope of the governor's powers. Unfortunately, I think for the restaurant owner, and I represent a lot of restaurants, is that that lawsuit will go nowhere because it's been litigated already, right? That There have been many lawsuits against the governor questioning his ability to do this constitutionally and all courts, including the appellate court, have confirmed that he has the right to do this. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the latest is, you know, the closures in the western suburbs like DuPage, Will, Kendall County, so forth. Um, and at the end of the day, though, I can't say I blame these restaurant owners. I think that if Chicago does in fact get shut down, which I assume it will be as of Friday, 
You've got people like Rick Bayless saying, I don't think that I can survive another wave of COVID if I have to close my restaurants. I mean, these are people whose livelihoods and the people on their teams, their, their livelihoods are at stake at this point. So hopefully, if nothing else, um, folks really think long and hard about what they're doing to people's lives before they shut down restaurants. I mean, I'm all for taking the necessary precautions to try to prevent the spread of COVID. That being said, um, I'm very worried already about where things stand, but I'm going to be extremely worried, as are many people, if we end up shutting down all these restaurants and all these other businesses, because I think a lot of them can't survive this second wave. RCX, so there's no question that what Tina says is correct. It's very unfortunate the number of people that rely on the hospitality, restaurant, bar business is staggering. And the effect on the economy of shutting them down is well into the you know billions, right? So it's devastating. But the, the question legally, and again, I'll submit that it's been already litigated, it's not even an issue, is whether the governor has the constitutional authority to do what he's doing, period. And whether you agree or disagree, the fact is the courts have already ruled months ago that he has the ability to do so. So the remedy would seem to be, if you don't like that policy, vote him out. But questioning his legal ability to do so has been litigated and it's now precedent, you know, like it or not. What are, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I have to agree with Tina on what she said. And I do, I mean, the law is the law, but uh, he also needs to take in consideration. Obviously, I don't agree with him shutting down restaurants. Um, it's going to... it it's going to kill so many people in ways that they're just, you know, they depend on it. And especially Chicago has become such a worldwide city of known for its food. And if he does this, I don't even think he's thinking about the, um, the long-term effects of what's going to, ha- what, what is going to happen to Chicago's independent restaurant industry. We're going to end up probably getting all of these you know, um, chains coming in and Chicago has worked so hard to gain the notoriety of having, you know, the, some of the best food in the world. And just let's just talk about the people, the, the bartenders, the waiters that depend on this. It's just, it's bad all around. I don't agree with him shutting this down. He does have the legal right to do it, but just because he has the legal right to do it doesn't mean he needs to do it. I think he needs to work with the restaurant industry and find a way to do it safely. All right. But, but Eric, what, what I actually had this debate with my trainer this morning at the gym and he, you know, he flat out said, I asked him, what would be the motivation? I mean, yeah, we get it. It's obviously devastating to the economy, and there's no question about that. I'm a, you know, I, I cologne, I'm a little piece of a, of a club. It's it's hurting me personally. But what's the counter argument? Do you think Pritzker is doing this on purpose? Does Pritzker want to hurt the economy? Now, his hand, <laughs> my trainer, well, no, was, yeah, well, it's political, that he wants people to be, you know, it's all political. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, I, I, one of the points that I made in my column today, I was talking about how I feel like President Trump on the stump is just lying brazenly about the pandemic and its effects. Yeah. He says we're rounding the corner. We're not. He says spikes in Florida and Arizona and Texas have gone away and they haven't. They're back. Uh, and that this this disease is not, a, is not a threat. It clearly is. And the reason he's saying that is because he wants to be reelected. And I'm sort of hoping that maybe next Wednesday, whether he's reelected or not, that he can actually be honest with us about this disease and take the steps that are needed. And one of the points that I made was that 
I'm glad that Governor Pritzker is not facing re-election until 2022 and Mayor Lightfoot is not facing re-election until 2023 because I do feel that they are making the decisions that, that they believe are best in the long run. Uh, and th- they think that the judgment on their on the way they handle the coronavirus is not going to be made in weeks or months, but maybe even in years. And you want them to take that long-term look because, yeah, I mean, uh, we're, we're talking about the future of these restaurants and the future of the restaurant industry and the people who work in them. We are all really concerned about this, and this is heartbreaking. The question that Governor Pritzker, Mayor Lightfoot, and others are looking at is, is what are the consequences if we don't take these steps, if we if we allow this virus to run rampant, if we don't manage to contain it, what's the city going to look like in a year, in, in 18 months from now? Uh, are we going to have any restaurants? Are we going to have uh, hospitals that are just completely overwhelmed? Are we going to have, you know, we have, right now we're closing in, I think, on 5,000 deaths. Are we going to have 50,000 deaths by that time? And what's that going to do to our economy? These are the trade-offs that he's trying to make. To get to your legal question, I believe what's been litigated is is the length of his, he, the governor has 30-day emergency powers, Right. And he's been essentially just renewing those. He's saying, okay, we, we're still in an emergency. I'm renewing those. And the courts have said that he can do that. Um, I don't remember, and, and Rich, maybe you'll remember, was, that a, was it a close call at all at the Supreme Court, the Illinois Supreme Court, or was it? I believe it was the appellate court. I know it wasn't. Close. I mean, they, yeah, I, I, it wasn't close uh, at all because, okay. you know, like in most states, although the Michigan Supreme Court, you know, came up with a different uh, decision and overruling Whitmer in that in that state. So yeah. uh, it's not universally agreed upon that the governor has the right to put these things in place. But I do believe in our state it will be that that you know that decision will uh, lead to an, uh, a reinforcement of his ability to do that. So we'll see. We'll move on. Uh, we'll keep moving here. Our next story involves uh, a hedge clippers theft, which sounds like sort of a funny story. We often deal with, you know, funny stories, but this one actually gets to the idea of uh, are these sentences for multiple offenders, should they continue, right? I mean, the president, in fact, the current president has talked about this in detail. Uh, One of the things you could argue he has done right is change some of these laws. But the idea that, you know, if you steal something small, but it's your fifth time stealing, should be put away to wait for life has a lot of implications, many of which are, are racial. So, Tina, we've got just a few minutes. Talk to us about this uh, this situation. So this particular case involves a Louisiana man that was sentenced to prison um, for trying to steal hedge clippers. It was like the fifth offense he had. And as as you mentioned, Rich, under the state's habitual offender law, because it was his fifth felony, um, he was sentenced to life in prison. Um, He was actually granted parole a few days ago after spending more than 20 years in prison for the crime. And unfortunately, as you mentioned, it does end up affecting people um, in a disproportionate way who are already suffering from poverty issues and addiction issues. And when you think about it, 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 it's the type of law that given where we are as a society today and the lens through which we are looking at a whole multitude of things, um, I do think that laws like this should be reexamined because the consequences of the crime being committed far outweigh and are really disproportionate compared to what brought the person um, you know, before the judge to begin with. And so... Um, these are called pig laws, I believe. And I think they are 
Um, they were introduced um, way back when, when we were talking about stealing cattle and swine. And so my guess is that that states will look through the, look at these laws through different lens, given where we are today. Yeah, Eric, I mean, it should be noted that the four prior convictions weren't for stealing hedge clippers. They were serious convictions. Uh, this individual was convicted of attempted armed robbery, possession of stolen items, attempted check forgery, and simple burglary. Uh, despite all that, the Louisiana Supreme Court Chief Justice said that his current sentence was grossly disproportionate and served no legitimate penal purpose. Uh, is it time to do away with these mandatory minimums and also habitual offender laws like this? I've never been a fan of, of mandatory minimums, and I've never been a fan, of, particularly not a fan of these, I, I think the more contemporary term would be like three strikes and you're out, mm -hmm. those kind of laws where, where you, can, you can commit a third crime that's not particularly serious, and this, and this hedge clipper one is an example of that. You've had people who are, who are put away for life for stealing a pizza or something, and uh, that you, you need to realize we have judges, and judges are not perfect but they, they can take into account someone's lifetime of crime, whether it's a first offense and so on. They do that already. Um, and, and you need to, you know, you need proportion in, in punishment. And, and you need to have, you, need to, you know, put judgment back into judges. And I've, I think mandatory minimums are just an example of, of a legislature bowing to just general public anger about crime. And I think you need to be smarter about crime and not just mad about it. All right, Tina, uh, we frequently talk about cease and desist letters by artists against politicians who are without a license, without permission, using their songs at political rallies. We've got no one, none other than the, the, the great Phil Collins, and one of your favorites from the 80s, telling Trump, stop using my, my music. What's going on with this case? Yeah, so we've covered a number of artists, including Neil Young, who recently have been taking action against Trump and sending demand letters. Phil Collins is just the latest in a series of these artists, and actually he has sent several demand letters over the past several months. Um, apparently, Trump continues to use In the Air Tonight um, as part of his rallies, and most recently, um, there were allegations actually in Phil Collins' demand letter, which is quite a read for those of you who like to read such things. I suggest you look it up. Um, he mentions that he thinks that it was actually trying to like play on the notion of there's being, you know, COVID being in the air and that it was just in bad taste. So it's not just a copyright infringement issue. It's almost something like a tarnishment type of a claim where Bill Collins is worried that his reputation is going to be tarnished by having his music associated with the Trump campaign. So at the end of the day, I mean, whether you're a president or just, you know, a layman, um, don't use other people's stuff without their permission. Arsiak, do you do you want to vote for Trump if someone you like, a, a musician that you like is played? I mean, I don't get the cause and effect between the, the, these things when these uh, politicians misappropriate the music. Arsiak, what, what are your thoughts on this? I just, I think that um, the, when I read this and I looked at it, I said, you know what, if Phil Collins really liked Donald Trump or maybe 
secretly he does like <laughs> Donald Trump, but doesn't want to let people know because that's how Donald Trump, I feel, got into office. The first place it was secretly done because so many people weren't outspoken about voting for him. I think this is kind of the same case. Like if it was something along those lines, he might secretly like him and just doesn't want because he sees the majority of people just, you know, what Trump has stood for. A lot of people don't agree with. So I have to say that Phil Collins, I mean, like Tina said, he has the right, like, don't use my stuff without asking permission and allowing me to say, you know, al allowing me to give you permission to use it or not use it. Eric, uh, Trump doesn't have that many celebrity friends. He's got a few. He has uh, very few. No. I think his, his inaugural uh, concerts were completely obscure bands, right? He didn't yeah. have anybody. He wanted. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, clearly you should not use an artist's work without his or her permission. Although I, I don't know what, what case law says on this, because I know that, like, for instance, political ads on TV have very different standards than other ads. That a, 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 a station can, can say, no, we're not going to run that claim. It's false when it comes to consumer products. But they don't have any, much of a choice when it comes to political ads. And so it may be that political candidates can claim some sort of First Amendment right to use Phil Collins or, or the village people or whoever Donald Trump wants to use. Um, so I don't know the case law on it. I just feel like as, as a moral matter, it is always wrong to take an artist's creation and use it for a purpose that he or she doesn't endorse if only we knew an intellectual property attorney who could answer that question. yeah that would be, that would be where i would go with this tina yeah i'm i'm with phil collins totally on this i i just i think from a first amendment issue it's a speech issue i mean it's a great point eric i think it's more applicable to the actual speech itself um rather than using somebody's um work that's subject to copyright <laughs> which is right, really favorite. the angle that Phil's using here. You know this question's coming. Quickly, around the horn. Favorite Phil Collins song of all time. Oh. Tina, <laughs> come on. Oh, man. See, Tina, I blur you know it what? with Genesis. Yeah, Genesis. Um, I mean, I'll just tell you the body of work of Genesis and Phil Collins. Uh, it's probably my favorite is Abacab. Abacab. Yeah, it was great. Arsiak, you're a little bit young for Phil Collins, but... <laughs> I actually do like Phil Collins. I grew up listening to him because my parents did. Um, off the top of my head, I really can't name a song, but when I hear oh, it, no. I know it's him. When I Off hear it, no. Cutter, Cutter, Mike, Eric Zorn, you have been to many Genesis and Phil <laughs> Collins concerts in your life. I know it. I, you know, I kind of like Against All Odds. I know it's uh -oh. a little bit, a little bit sappy, but you know, very cinematic. The great uh, Jeff Bridges uh, movie. I'll go with that. Uh, I'm, I'm a big studio fan, mostly because who knows what it means? It means nothing. I love songs about words that mean nothing. So I, I'm going to go with Susudio. Very danceable. Oh, I, I, I like that you, one. I give uh, you that. Let's keep yeah. moving to uh, another story uh, involving Borat, our friend uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, who we just covered in the with Pat McDonald on the Chicago 7 trial movie on Netflix. Sasha Baron Cohen was sued. I'm not sure if he was sued as Borat or as Sasha Baron Cohen, but one of these subjects in his movie sued because she said that he, he, uh, she, he scammed her, didn't have her permission. He, of course, showed her, or Amazon did, showed her the, uh, the license that she signed. She said, her state said, actually, because she passed away, unfortunately, that it wasn't her signature and, and, and who knows. But inevitably, you know, people who are uh, in these movies, in the Borat movies, in Ali G are suing because they don't know that they're being 
you know, duped. They think they're really dealing with someone. I was watching with my son and he kept asking me, is that a real actor? Or is that a real, is that, is that a person? So uh, they worked it out. Uh, I like to film a lot. Uh, Eric, uh, you're a Borat aficionado. Very nice. There you go. That's all we need. Arcea, what are your thoughts of, of, uh, of this lawsuit? It's so crazy. I actually was in and out of the movie last night with my husband. He's like, he's been wanting to see this. So we were sitting down watching it and I was kind of like your son. I was asking, is this real? Like, how are people like, how do you not know? I just didn't under, I just, honestly, I don't understand his movies. I get the gist of it. It's comedy. It's funny, but how do people not know they're being filmed? Or how well, does Ju- my, fa- my favorite was the Giuliani part. I mean, there's no way that Giuliani, Giuliani is now said, and for those of you who haven't seen it, you know, of course, Giuliani is uh, depicting the film with uh, the actress that plays Borat's daughter, and she plays a reporter, and she asks him to go back to the bedroom in the hotel to have drinks. Next thing you know, uh, Giuliani's lying down, has his hands down his pants. He says he's taking off his microphone. It's clear that that's not what his intent was. And, you know, he has since said that, oh, Sasha Baron Cohen is a stone cold liar if he's saying I did anything uh, inappropriate. But I mean, that to me is just a shocking scene, you know, and he's he's patting her, her side or maybe it should be shocking. Anyway, we'll keep moving to our last story. And then we've got a surprise at the end. Um, Tina, we like to deal with uh, this is our yearly Halloween show, even though uh, none of you are dressed up. Eric's got the uh, Trump administration. Behind him, of course, <laughs> um, our Halloween show. And we always cover some bizarre Halloween lawsuits. There's always crazy lawsuits around the holidays. There's a couple. We don't have a lot of time. But uh, what's your one or two favorites from our Halloween lawsuit grab bag? So there are so many. And I do wish that at some point we have. I'm gonna, by the way, I'm going to do this with my Halloween costume. Hold on. Keep going. I, I, I really wish that we would do shows around the holidays that just focus on these lawsuits. But you know, let me just put it this way. The um, one about people dressing as lambs yeah. for Halloween and thinking that they can put cotton on them um, without being worried about blowing up is remarkable to me. So this has happened a number of times where we've seen cases where people decide to like dress up as a lamb or otherwise cover their bodies in cotton balls. And then they are compelled to, I don't know, light a match light a lighter and then wonder why they go up in flames. Um, moral of the story, people, this is not what cotton balls are intended for. So you may want to think twice before you do those things. Um, yeah, I, I was pleased to see that that lawsuit was ultimately thrown out though, right? Yes. The, the, Thank the, goodness. Johnson and Johnson, the maker of the cotton balls uh, had it thrown out. My, my favorite was the one about the banana costume. Yeah. Who knew? Who knew the banana costume? was <laughs> You know, the life-size banana costume and the, and the uh, person, the company that originally made them life-size banana costume sued people who were making knockoff banana costumes and they prevailed. Because the banana costume was intellectual property, I guess. Or yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure that the design of one versus the other, that it was so distinctive, right? One was green bananas, the other was... Uh, oh, look, there's Trump. <laughs> <laughs> what, about, what about the inevitable lawsuit for people who fall in haunted houses? Newsflash. Oh, that was ridiculous. Haunted houses are dangerous and they're dark. That's ridiculous. I think if common sense was more common, more people would have it. Yeah. And also, you know, don't start firing shots from a gun just because you're afraid of fake spiders. You know, that's another word to the wise there. 
or the pumpkin, the inflatable pumpkins where the guy sued because it rained and all of his inventory was damaged because he didn't think that water would get into the inventory because he used the pumpkins as I think it was where he sold stuff out of them. I mean, but, I don't even know. But weren't the pumpkins, uh, Your Honor, weren't the pumpkins supposed to be um they were shelters. They weren't just inflatable pumpkins. They were sold as shelters. Wait, right? let's, ha- let's ask Trump. Look. That's a good way to end. Legendary Chicago media superstar Eric Zorn and soon-to-be legendary real estate magnet Arsiak. Vartenian, no? It's so many vowels, I don't even get offended anymore. I've been called so many different names. <laughs> you are the best. Awesome job. Thank you so much for joining us on Legal Face Off. We're going to let you guys go, and then we're going to uh, – we have a special surprise. We don't want to spend more of your time, but uh, thank you so much for joining us. Come back soon on Legal Face Off. My pleasure. Thank Thanks. you. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. We want all of our listeners and viewers to stay tuned, though, because we've got a surprise. So as – our avid watchers know from our last show, Tina, our co-host, recently celebrated a birthday. Oh, no. <laughs> Tina, you did. I did. And uh, we've got Emily and Ben on. Sam could not be here, but we wanted to uh, sing you a, a happy birthday song. So let's start at the count of three. All right. Three, two, one. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to, to you. Actually, hold on, guys. Stop, stop, stop. Because we're way, we're way out of tune. We're not harmonious. But close your eyes, Tina. (laughs) Are you serious? Hello, Christina Martini or Tina. Richland Cove, your uh, co-host. Just want to greet you a very happy, happy birthday. And thank you so much for being uh, such a huge fan. And, um, well, here I am. It's for you, this song. When you're feeling love's on fire, you're just as the lonely. When you're lost in deep despair, you Lonely, Christina, and it's your birthday. Happy birthday, dude! That is awesome. Oh my god! Journey lead singer Arnel Pinedo. How do you know him? We went to uh, we were in prison together in Manila <laughs> in the eighties. Yeah, Sussler oh my god, that's awesome. Sussler told me that that's your favorite Journey song. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab, so hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question, just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Cover in sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.